You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I'm excited to be able to bring you a field of research we've never covered on the podcast before now. Professor Matthew Aitchison is one of Australia's leading thinkers in the field of architecture, championing a holistic view on improving the construction industry through practical design, integrated sensing, digital twins, and sustainable materials. Professor Aitchison recently led the bid for the Buildings 4.0 CRC, and now serves as the group's interim CEO, managing a diverse network of industry partners, including LendLease, BlueScope, Architecture, Salesforce, and Amazon Web Services, among many others. Meanwhile, he continues to serve as a director of the Future Building Initiative at Monash University, and is also a former professor of architecture at the University of Sydney. As you'll hear, Matt's career in architecture and academia is as unlikely as it is impressive. He was born in regional Queensland and grew up far away from the galleries, museums and skyscrapers that might have otherwise inspired a career in building design. But the turn of fate that led Matt from a regional upbringing to a career in academia is a story best left for him. So Professor Matthew Aitchison, welcome to Lab Notes. Thank you very much. So Matt, you've already had a diverse and successful career in architecture. You're currently leading the Building 4.0 CRC, but also a professor at Monash, a former researcher at Sydney University and also the University of Queensland. And I understand that you've spent quite a lot of time studying in Europe and even helped write a book about early 20th century architecture. Is it fair to call you an architecture nerd? <laughs> Actually, uh, no. Uh, I I am something of an iconoclast, I think, yeah, when it comes to architecture. I uh, have been heard to say once or twice, uh, and, and I have to be careful what I say here, uh, biting the hand that feeds me, but I, I love architecture. I am eternally grateful that I was able to study uh, the wonderful field and discipline of architecture. However, I have said previously, and I would say again now, is that I think when we're looking at the future of the built environment, I'm not so convinced that architecture is a solid foundation on which to think about that. Uh, and I make a very strong distinction here between the skill sets that uh, architects and many other designers have uh, and the discipline and profession of architecture, which I see as having several fairly large issues. So uh, I, your statement is kind of true. I am kind of a nerd. I have a, an enormous slide bank of buildings that I've photographed around the world, for example, but I'm not a huge fan of the discipline and profession of architecture. Well, that's interesting to hear, Matt, and I wonder if your unconventional approach might have something to do with your upbringing as well, because you were born in regional Queensland, and it's, you know, it's not an area that's known for its, its buildings, its skyscrapers, or, or architecture necessarily. What can you tell us about your early days in regional Queensland and, and how they've shaped you as an architect? <laughs> well, there was no skyscrapers. We, uh, we had to go to the neighbouring town, uh, which was an hour away, to find a traffic light, uh, which was uh, quite a novelty for us. 
the local school only went to grade 10 and one had to travel after that to go on to finish secondary school. So it, it was very rural, very remote. As you may guess, everything was fairly utilitarian out there in the country. And so as a result, I think I was imbued from a fairly early age with practical skills. We, we used to make a lot of things, which is what endeared me so much to architecture was that practical making of things. But the, uh, the artistry aspect of it was way off in the distance at that point uh, and something that I, I really uh, encountered for the first time properly when I went to university in Brisbane uh, in the early 90s. Yeah, right. And I guess that's the transition that linked you into architecture. Can you pinpoint any mentors or early experiences that sparked your interest in this direction? Uh, it's, it's a funny and somewhat embarrassing story uh, how I actually came to architecture. Um, we got sent a list of subjects to look at when we were in high school finishing. And obviously that was alphabetically outlined. Uh, and one of the top of the of the list was obviously agriculture and coming from a country town I was really dead set against doing agriculture but then there was this thing called architecture right up at the top and I thought that sounds interesting that sort of sounds practical and like they're very strong purpose I think I could do that and uh, so that's how I actually came to it it's it's a little embarrassing but it's it's a true story um and um, mentors, I had very many. I had, uh, it was a very rich period of study for me. One of my key teachers and, and indeed my uh, doctoral supervisor, Professor John MacArthur, was a huge influence on me, uh, an exceptionally generous person, uh, generous intellectual, uh, very, very well respected within his field and, and within Australia. He. He had a, a tremendous impact on me and, and, and supported me, not just uh, in terms of the PhD uh, supervision, but a whole manner of uh, other things and, and helped me get different opportunities that I've had throughout the years. Uh, but there were so many teachers in that period. Um, uh, I could go on and on. Uh, the, the then head of school, uh, Mick Kenniger, was hugely helpful to me. Uh, Greg Bamford, Peter Skinner. Uh, so many people, I, I, I couldn't list them all off the top of my head, but uh, they had a huge impact on me in my early formative years. I love that story about uh, heading there because of it being the letter A, Matt. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. <laughs> well, I was pretty young at the time, so yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Um, <laughs> so you obviously moved on to a PhD, and I think a significant segment of our audience know firsthand how all-encompassing that process can be. What was your early experiences with research? Oh, it was it was amazing. Um, I kind of went back to do a PhD because I, I felt like I wasn't done. Uh, I, I was living in Berlin at that stage in Germany, and I worked for two years as a tutor at the Technical University of Berlin. And so I, I had a foot in the academy and I kind of felt from my education to that point that I, I really wasn't done studying and I really wanted to go back and, and study something else uh, and, and deepen my knowledge. And, and the way to do that was to do a PhD. And I was fortunate enough, as I say, that John MacArthur uh, took me on. Um, that wasn't a, a light decision on his part. <laughs> Uh, and I was fortunate enough to get a scholarship from uh, the University of Queensland, which was extremely helpful. Uh, research I found I found really enjoyable. I, I tend to hoover up a lot of knowledge and 
the early period of, of the PhD was literally like a Hoover in that sense that uh, I sucked up all kinds of information about the subject matter that I was researching at the time. And ultimately, I think back on that period and I think how well it set me up and how well I see it setting other doctoral students up and in some cases doctoral students that I've been fortunate enough to supervise to do many different things after that. Once you've understood research methodology, it really is something that you can repeat many, many times on on any different topic after that. Uh, So I, I was wholly entranced by uh, being a researcher and and I've become something of an evangelist uh, for research after that. So although Matthew immersed himself in his PhD intellectually, he was often absent physically. In fact, he completed much of these studies whilst living and working in Europe. Between 1995 and his return in 2010, Matthew was principally based in the German capital of Berlin, whilst also spending time in England, Ireland, and the Netherlands. These cities were a world away from Matt's upbringing in rural Queensland, and even the relative bustle of Brisbane couldn't fully prepare Matthew for being immersed in the architecture and culture of the old world. So I asked Matt how this period changed his understanding of architecture, and what lessons stuck with him from living and working in the cities of Europe? Yeah, so many lessons, in fact. I think I I gained an appreciation for so many things. It made me more critical of architecture in Australia. At that time in the 90s, there was a very strong focus on in architecture in Australia around individual houses. Uh, I felt there wasn't a very strong focus on an urban level. And that was something that Europe really taught me. And and living in a place like Berlin that by any standard is acknowledged as the most amazing place to live was a fantastic lesson. So I think the the urban was a key part for me, understanding what it is to be in a city, not in a suburb, not in the kind of verdant areas that in Australia we traditionally tend to call cities, like the beautiful part of the city I'm sitting in now, right now in Brisbane. Uh, that was really something that I, I took away from it. I also think I took away was uh, while I was studying over in Germany, I worked in a German cabinet makers workshop and that gave me a real feel for the difference in the tradition and the history of uh, handcraft in Europe, which was very, very different to Australia. I went away with a lot of respect for craftspeople in Europe and the very rigorous training and expertise and and mastery that they develop. And I think the final thing that I think about when I think back on that period and buildings in Europe was my association with living in the, the kind of alternative scene that I did in Germany which was, you know, more broadly known as occupied house or, or squatted house scene where, um, as you may know, in, in Berlin, there were a lot of places that were empty uh, when the wall came down. What actually happened was many people from the West went over and squatted effectively these vacant properties. And the culture and the things that they developed were absolutely incredible. One of my close friends, Dougal Sheridan, wrote his, uh, his undergraduate thesis about the squatted house that he lived in and that eventually I lived in. Uh, And it really showed me what people can do 
if they have the time and the space and financial pressure is not on. And this was uh, put into really sharp contrast when I would visit friends or friends would visit me who'd been staying in London. <laughs> and as you're probably familiar with the uh, Australian in London trope, uh, they were working uh, six days a week, 12 hours a day, and they were paying you know, inordinate amounts of money uh, for rent, whereas myself and my friends in Germany were working a couple of days a month and uh, living like uh, royalty and creating and being engaged in some of the most amazing projects I can probably ever be involved in. So I found that very interesting, and that wasn't an experience that I think I could have had in Australia, uh, and certainly one that I've never had because there didn't seem to be the option of stepping outside the normal economic and social frameworks in Australia that you could in, in Berlin at that time. Yeah, an incredible, almost bohemian experience there, Matt. But as our listeners can probably tell, you didn't stay in Europe forever. In 2010, you returned to Australia after about 15 years living and working in Europe. What made 2010 the right time for you to come home? Ah, uh, very uh, critical time. At that point, I'd worked in a number of different countries. I'd worked in the States for a year. I'd worked almost two years in Northern Ireland. And I found it very difficult to get ongoing work in Berlin, which was my place of residence. My then partner uh, fell pregnant with my, my son. Uh, and both of us, uh, once we learned that news, sort of looked at each other and said, yeah, I, I think it might be time to go home. Both of our families lived here in Australia. Um, I, I had a wonderful job waiting for me. You know, it's easy to say now looking back in retrospect, but I, I really felt starved of opportunity over in Europe. It seemed very difficult to, to get a break. Uh, and obviously, as, as things have turned out here in Australia, it was a, a lot more easy to get a break. And I haven't looked back. Well, let's talk about that break now because you went back to your alma mater at the University of Queensland and became a young leader in the Architecture, Theory, Criticism and History Centre. What can you tell us about ACH and I guess finding your feet in the Australian academic system? Uh, I wouldn't say leader per se. I, would, uh, I was initially hired as manager. Um, uh, those who knew me at that time would probably say that I thought I was the leader. Um, but I actually technically wasn't leader. Uh, oh, that was a really uh, amazing centre put together by my doctoral supervisor, John MacArthur at the University of Queensland. Extremely successful unit, uh, was able to bring together an amazing group of people. Um, yeah, I learned a lot about what it is to work in a team there, uh, what it is to try to make something that's bigger than just an individual. And, uh, you know, as time has shown and, and as my career has shown, uh, staying in history and theory and criticism in those areas was not to be my destiny, as it were. But, but the lessons I learned there were very, very important for the other initiatives that I then went on to, to form. Yeah, well, definitely. And if you weren't a leader of ACH, you soon became one because you were hired by Sydney University as a professor in architecture. And it was there that you started your own industry-focused research group. I think it was called the Innovation in Applied Design Lab. Can you tell us what that research program was about and what you were trying to build at the University of Sydney? Yeah, it's, it's quite a complex name. 
and given that I've already added myself as a as a critic of architecture, it probably would have been easier for me to just say the word architecture. But I was really interested in um, innovation. Um, I'm I'm passionate about that. I, I love novelty. I love creativity. I, I want to make a difference in the world, and so that was a very important uh, part for me. Um, the applied design part was a, a, a criticism, if you like, of um, these aspects of architecture that I've been referring to a couple of times now, which is that I think by 2015 it was pretty clear to me that architecture as a profession and as a discipline was largely about making very beautiful houses and places for people that have lots of money. Or on the other hand, you know, multi-story housing developments for developers. And to me, this seemed like a very, very impoverished scope of activity. I, I don't mean to be critical of either of those two activities. I think making houses for people is a very noble and honourable thing to do. It just wasn't the thing that was lighting my fire. And I had always wished and hoped at some level, I guess, that as architects, the valuable skills we have could be turned to bigger issues and more pressing problems. And so that's what we were trying to do with the Innovation and Applied Design Lab at the University of Sydney. Do you have any specific examples of the kind of projects you're working on? Yeah, several. In fact, we were fortunately blessed with a number of different projects, uh, I think three or four, you know, in, in my world at that time, high profile projects. And all of them had that focus of, you know, the future of building, the future of construction, what's it going to look like? Uh, the other thing they had all in common was working with industry partners to solve those issues. So very much not research that was housed in the university that was for researchers only very much outward reaching to industry, working on problems together. After a couple of smaller projects that kind of culminated in a larger project that was principally carried out with Lend-Lease. It was the very first round of the CRC projects, which was a sort of a baby CRC, if you like, that was initiated in 2016. That project was called Innovation in Multi-Story Housing Manufacture, which was a sort of somewhat convoluted title uh, but really what it was about was working alongside Lend-Lease to look at how we would make buildings in the future, and in particular, multi-storey housing. That was a fantastic team from Design Make and Lend-Lease. It really introduced uh, myself and, and the team uh, to some of the world leaders in the thinking of, of what that looked like. And as had previously happened with other projects that we'd worked on together, we, we used it as, a, as an opportunity to travel around the world with our industry partners, looking at cutting edge uh, developments all over the world uh, and trying to synthesize, if you like, some of the learnings we had from those trips back into the work uh, and apply them here in Australia to a, a local industry. Yeah, great, Matt. And I guess obviously that project speaks to your increasing focus in applied research and research translation initiatives. Uh, in 2019, you, you moved to Melbourne, I guess, completing your trifecta of Australian East Coast states and started work with Monash University. I know this was correlating with the time that you were laying the foundations for the Building 4.0 CRC. But before we get to the CRC, can you tell us a little bit about what you were up to at Monash and your research lab there? 
Yeah, uh, look, I had a very, um, I think it was around about 2012, I had a very early introduction to several colleagues at, at Monash University, which made me aware of the fact that of all of the architecture schools in Australia, you could say that the the way that, that architecture and urban design was being framed down at Monash was perhaps the closest to the view that I had of the future of the, the industry. And so it wasn't an accident um, that we uh, and our group would gravitate a little more closely down to Monash. And that's because some of the things that we've already spoken about, I guess, is about the, the industry-facing aspect of it, the idea of, of architecture as a, as a social art form, the end goal of which is to improve people's lives rather than aggrandise somebody who earns a lot of money, uh, for example. So this was, this was part of the DNA of Monash University, and, and I felt very, very comfortable there. And, and I'd known the, the dean, Shane Murray, uh, for quite some years and so it was a fairly natural progression with the kind of work we were doing and the direction we wanted to head to align ourselves to Monash and I, I was very happy that they were able to welcome us in the way that they did uh, and I was also happy to be able to repay that that welcome with the establishment of the CRC within the first year of having moved to Monash. Well that sounds like a great time to segue into the CRC. It was 2020 by the time the grant was officially announced, but no doubt you had put in a great deal of foundational work before that. As the lead applicant on this grant, what was that grant process like for you? Uh, really interesting. I mean, I, I love the the thrill of working on something like a big grant application like that. It's it's uh, it pulls a team together. You kind of get steeled in the fire as a group, and I think we had a lot of stressful moments, uh, and we also had a lot of fun, and and that's what it's all about at the end of the day. And I also think we all all were committed to it and thought that this is a really important problem. Uh, it wasn't every day that you see a CRC uh, or even the built environment being funded at that level from the Commonwealth government. Traditionally, fields like medicine, mining, uh, agriculture, these are things which turn up, or resource extraction, I should say, uh, are things that turn up every year in the CRC framework. Built environment, not so much. There was a lot of work. Uh, I, I think all of those projects I mentioned were really, really key stepping stones towards the bigger CRC. And indeed, all of the people that we worked with over the years on those projects all had a hand to play in pulling together the big CRC. So it's very difficult to draw a line and say when that process started. Uh, in fact, we'd done some exploratory work while still at the University of Sydney way back in uh, 2018. And then it really ramped up uh, in the early half of 2019 uh, with the move to Monash and uh, some of the commitments of the partners at that stage. And I should point out that in the early stages there, there were, there were uh, four groups that were the so-called foundational partners, um, being the University of Melbourne, uh, Monash University, Donovan Group, and, and of course, Lend-Lease, who were the largest contributor to the CRC. So yeah, Matt, I guess that covers the process of getting this group together, but I also did want to tap into why it's so important. I think quite a lot of Australians will be familiar with how important the construction sector is to the economy, but not so many would be familiar with its state of innovation or lack thereof. Can you tell us why now is the right time to be focusing on 
building and building CRCs? Very, very good question. Um, I was discussing this very matter with a colleague this morning. I think it's hard to summarize into one catchy line. Uh, one of the things we need to do in order to explain the importance of our work is to draw many lines that extend out of construction, I think. I mean, clearly at one level, buildings play an enormous role in all of our lives. Um, you're surrounded by them. So that, that's a fund foundational point and a, and a fundamental point. Uh, few people are aware of how inefficient the building industry is, uh, how wasteful it is. It continues to be an extremely dangerous profession if you tend to work in there. Um, many people get injured on building sites and in some cases uh, some people die. There are very big problems like this and in many cases I think you can also see the building industry as a kind of last frontier for innovation. It's, it's hard to name any other sector within our economy that has in many regards remained so resistant to innovation and particularly innovation through new technologies and processes. Uh, one of our partners said uh, at a launch we had that a Roman walking onto a building site of today would feel pretty much at home. <laughs> and then they later went on to qualify that statement by saying that in many cases, some of the skills may have deteriorated since Roman times. Um, that's a particularly pointed comment, of course, but I do think a lot of that stands and it is an industry that's lagging in many ways. And it is an industry that is getting more and more expensive. And uh, it's also an industry that's hugely important because of its sustainability credentials. Um, so there's a study that said uh, that 40% of the world's energy usage is through buildings. And so these are really important reasons why we should care about buildings. And they're really important uh, reasons that we need to lift the game of building. And so for myself and many of my colleagues, we, we scratch our heads at this kind of exceptionalism of buildings and we wonder whether we can change it. Well, we certainly hope that you can change it, but I did want to ask one question on the kind of strategy because you've, you've taken a very broad approach to this problem. You're, you're tackling challenges from urban design and housing affordability to construction efficiency to um, fire resistance, cladding, digital technologies. It's, it's a really broad set of challenges. And I guess as CEO, you're now responsible for delivering on that. But as grant writer, you're also responsible for setting yourself up to this challenge. So why did you choose to take on such a diverse range of issues simultaneously? Yeah, that, that was intentional. That wasn't uh, accidental. Of course, it's a much easier proposition to sell and explain uh, if you have a very, very narrow focus. But I think the history of uh, attempts to transform and innovate in construction uh, have tended to, to focus on individual issues, individual problems. Uh, and these might be, for example, the idea that if we just focus on better materials, that somehow the rest of the construction industry will fall into line. This is very much the kind of winning product uh, mentality that you see coming out of other sectors such as consumer electronics and you know the, the logic of consumer electronics and the legacy of Steve Jobs for example is that if I just develop this amazing product 
somehow I'll transform the world and transform the whole industry. That logic is also in existence in construction, but I think it's a, a wrong-headed logic because I don't think construction works that way. Uh, construction buildings are exceedingly complex systems. They touch so many different parts of the world, uh, of culture, of the economy, uh, that it is very difficult to isolate a single part like that. And I think the very big risk of having a very narrow focus in uh, attempts to innovate in construction risks changing the part and, and ticking that box and saying, yes, we've created, for example, a new product or a new material. Uh, but if it's not integrated with all of these other areas that you need within the wider building industry, then you haven't really innovated at all. And I think that's what we've seen in the history of innovation and construction is that this very focused approach is not that effective. And so we made a very clear decision early on to be very holistic in our approach. Yeah. And I guess that holistic approach has also demanded that your CRC bring in a wide range of stakeholders. I mean, we've already spoken about Lendlease, but there's also Bluescope, uh, Standards Australia, and even tech companies like Salesforce and Amazon Web Services. How do you go about working with these industry players and keep them engaged in research projects that might take years or even decades to reach fruition? Uh, very good question. Uh, maybe at the end of the CRC, I'll be able to give you the definitive answer there, Leo. But um, we have some strategies for, for how we do that. Uh, I think, let, let me just step back and explain the, the breadth of the partner group. That too was intentional. Um, the way we conceived it was as a slice through what we termed the, the value chain. The reason I say slice is because we didn't just open our arms and say to every player that we came across in the construction industry, would you like to come and join our CRC? Uh, instead, we looked at the construction industry and the property industry, and we said, what are the various positions in this value chain? And then we said, who are the best in class along that value chain? And then we chose effectively one from each of those positions. And the reason we did that was because construction's not known for being a particularly collaborative industry. In fact, it's quite antagonistic. You know, there's a lot of uh, competition and there's a lot of secrecy, for example. And so one of the things that we, we set in place uh, with the choice of our stakeholders was to have a, a kind of de facto non-compete within the group. That, by our thinking at least, meant that the partners that we did have in the group could feel free to open up, that they would be more likely to collaborate with everyone else because they weren't facing competition. And this strategy by its nature meant that we were hoping to lift just this first slice up into this new way of working uh, in the hope that that would then demonstrate to the wider industry that A, this was possible and that B, it was better uh, than the way that we'd done it before. So that that is, is a bit of a background to this really broad group of stakeholders. Uh, the second part of your question about how we engage with them and keep them in projects, uh, the initial part of our engagement uh, with that, that partner group has really been through deep consultation. Uh, we've started with our partner groups. We, we've asked them what it is that they need. We've asked them what their pain points are, and we've worked with them collaboratively to develop our projects. In addition to the bulk of those projects, we've also launched a number of projects, cross-cutting projects, if you like, 
that involve many different parties. Their aim is to to touch as many uh, points on that value chain, if you like, as possible, and to try to do projects that will bring that group together in a, in a foundational way so that we may go on to do even deeper and longer and broader projects. Um, a, a good example, I think, uh, one's called e-approvals and e-planning, and, and that's looking at a new process for how buildings will be developed and approved, if you like, from uh, municipalities and how we can use new technologies to do that. Uh, another project of that ilk is about how we will use new technologies in the area of materials tracking and compliance. Uh, so as you may or may not be aware, uh, this is a huge issue in construction, uh, led to some very big problems a few years back around flammable cladding, where unfortunately in construction, it's rarely possible to know exactly what materials were used where and where they came from and, and materials provenance is a huge issue. So, so that project uses new technologies to effectively track materials, have a, have a, a kind of tracing process in place uh, so that you can do a complete audit of a, of a building and that some of the certification and compliance issues can be automated. That's a very uh, different approach to the way that things are done currently. Uh, there's another project we're doing that's in development at the moment that focuses around the uh, introduction of digital platforms into the construction industry and what impact this will have, how this will change the uh, ecology of building, if you like, how this will change the supply chain and the way that various players within that supply chain will talk and interact with one another. Uh, that could extend right out into legal and financial matters, but also in terms of uh, design and engineering type parameters. Well, thanks for that overview of some of your upcoming projects, Matt. Um, a final question related to the CRC. I don't think we can end this interview without giving a plug to some other content because you actually host a podcast series of your own. What can you tell us about the Future Buildings podcast? Yeah, Future Buildings podcast. Um, thanks for asking. I was, I was saying uh, at the beginning of this, uh, Leo, that it's nice to be on the receiving end of a question uh, instead of uh, framing the questions. Uh, Future Building podcast was launched towards the end of, or in the middle, I should say, of 2020. And it was in part a reaction to the fact that our CRC had been officially announced on the 18th of March, 2020, which many of you will <laughs> remember uh, was the very day that we also went into lockdown. And so one of the things that I personally would have been very strongly pushing our team to do in the first six months of our operation would have been to begin the process of engaging with our stakeholders through seminars, lectures, um, presentations that you give. All of that was made very, very difficult by the lockdown. Uh, and in many respects, we're still in the midst of that um, right now at the end of March in 2021. Uh, we still have great troubles hosting in-person events. And so the podcast started as a way of trying to share knowledge and try to get voices in from inside and outside the CRC that could start to stimulate a conversation across a really, really broad range of topics. I'm quite proud that we've only had five episodes to date, but all of them are on completely different topics. And to stimulate that discussion uh, in the hope that um, some of that knowledge sharing could, could pass down, not just through the CRC, but into the wider uh, general public. Well, thanks for that rundown, Matt. 
We'll definitely provide a link to the Future Building podcast into the description of this Lab Notes episode. So if you're an audience member who's keen on architecture and building, do take a look at that. Um, as a final question, Matt, something we've asked all of our guests this season is if you had a piece of advice to give a young researcher or even a younger version of yourself, what would that be? Oof, um, be tenacious. There's many reasons that you will need to stop doing something. Uh, in some cases, you may run out of funding. You may run out of steam. You may lose the support of your supervisor or your colleagues or your dean or, or whoever it may be. Uh, but if you really believe in something, you need to be tenacious and you need to keep pushing it and you need to be proactive, I think. And so I, I think that's my, um, my piece of advice is that put yourself out there, be tenacious about what it is you want to do uh, and keep pushing. Well, that's a wonderful spot to leave it. Professor Matthew Aitchison, thank you so much for joining us on the Lab Notes podcast. Thanks very much, Leo. It was a pleasure to be here. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Brenny Digital. You can find links to both of those organisations, along with our guests' biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.